The following interview with former TD Ameritrade CEO Joe Ricketts was conducted prior to news that Charles Schwab has agreed to buy TD Ameritrade. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Joe Ricketts. He is the founder of TD Ameritrade, a $1.3 trillion custodian. Uh, Ricketts is an entrepreneur who has built a business over the course of 50 years and is extremely knowledgeable about what it's like to go through all the growing pains. Uh, ultimately, he the company goes public in 97 and has been wildly successful. Uh, about a decade ago, Ricketts and his family purchased the Chicago Cubs. We talk about that. We talk about politics. Uh, we talk about policy. We talk about all sorts of really, really interesting things. If you are at all interested in go down the list, online trading, entrepreneurship, building a business, taking chances, embracing risk. I could go on and on, but rather than me babble, why don't I just say my conversation with Joe Ricketts. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Joe Ricketts. He is the founder and former CEO of TD Ameritrade, one of the largest retail custodians in America, with, what is it, about $1.3 trillion in assets under custodianship. He bought the Chicago Cubs in 2009, and a few years later, the team won their first World Series in 108 years. Joe Ricketts, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. It's uh, fun to be here. So I was looking forward to having this conversation for a number of reasons, but let's go back to the beginning and, and start with your career. You were a credit reporter at Dun & Bradstreet. That seems so out of character to everything I know about you. Well, it was critically important to the decisions that governed my de- direction in life. Um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do for a living, and I had already started a family, so uh, I had to come up with... Uh, some direction pretty quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. Time was going by, and I you, you were in college when you already had your first couple of kids, and it's like, Correct. hey, I better start making some money. That's right. And uh, so I took this job with Dunn and Bradstreet, where I went out to all the small towns in southeast Nebraska and southwest Iowa to call on the businesses. So I'd drive into town, and I'd just go one business after another with the credit report that I had from the previous year and talk to them about updating it. And I got to meet a lot of interesting people, and I got to meet a lot of people that were really making our country go. Mm -hmm. And the thing that stunned me, or really kind of a light that went off, when I was in college, I had a professor of social sciences tell us we were such a great country because of our natural resources. Mm -hmm. And after I got out and into the business world, calling on these merchants, I understood the wealth of this country came out of the brains of these people. They took money out of their own pocket, ideas out of their own heads, and they started a business, a shoe store or a pharmacy or whatever. And they hired people and they had to satisfy their customers. And so working to satisfy your customer at the same time, being able to create wealth was a wonderful idea for me. So I said, that's what I want to do. I want to have my own business. So you go from Dun & Bradstreet to Dean Witter as a stockbroker in 1968, and then the ideas start to uh, gestate in your your head. Correct. How did Dean Witter lead to First Omaha in 1975, seven years later? Well, Dean Witter was a commission job. All the brokers really in the country worked on commissions, and I didn't have any capital to start my own business. So this was as close to having my own business as I uh, could get. And we just happened to become registered. I say we, my the other guys in the training class, at a time when a market was at the top and it went down for the next five years, which was a big surprise because it hadn't done that for a long, long time. 66, the Dow kisses 1,000. <laughs> By 1974, down 57%. Correct. And so how did that impact you as a, as a well, broker? It was very difficult to make a living as a broker. <laughs> we imagine. had to work very hard all the time. But we were building a, a, a client book that would help us in the future. Just about the time when we thought that client book was going to help us make the type of income that we wanted, 
Right. The idea of negotiated commissions came into the marketplace. The the big boom. So the restrictions, the regulations go away. Brokers Correct. are de deregulated, and you could pretty much charge much much less than pre before. So I realized if I call my customer and talk to him about a good idea to invest in, the second conversation was, how much are you going to charge, and right. how little do they want to pay? So we were going to. So so it appeared though as though we were going to have to have twice as much in the way of a client book and work twice as hard just to uh, be able to make the same living. So my friend, uh, the guy that became a partner with me, Bob Perlman, and I talked about, why don't we join him? I got to tell you, Barry, we had no idea how to start a brokerage firm. Really? We didn't have any idea whatsoever, except there were two ideas that, that floated through our minds. Number one was we thought there was a large enough market of people that wanted to buy or sell a stock without any other conversation. They just wanted Meaning, to place the order. We don't want your recommendation. We don't care what your, your best of list is. Just execute the trade as cheaply as possible. That's correct. There, right. And there was a market. We didn't know how big, but we thought there was. And, and the cost of, of trading pre-deregulation was a oh, couple well, hundred bucks or a couple, couple hundred bucks versus 25 that's really huge 90 percent drop is huge tremendous dramatic the other idea that was important and that proved to be correct was that after the second world war we had the gi bill and a lot of men and women came back from the war used the gi bill to become engineers pharmacists and these people were educated well enough to be able to do their own financial planning and be right. able to make their own decisions. And, and they were making a nice enough living that there's a little investable cash on the side. Correct. So the market turned out to be quite huge. We, we just had to uh, find a way to advertise into that market so that we could tell them succinctly what we were doing and make them want to respond to us. So how did First Omaha become eventually Ameritrade and then TD Ameritrade? We, uh, it, it's really a long story, but we thought we would be a local business. Mm-hmm. And we found out that we could not exist as a local business. So we advertised in the Midwest edition of the Wall Street Journal. There was a, a favorite spot on the inside of the back page in those times right. where all the discount brokers advertised. And so we advertised in uh, that paper with an 800 number. Now, something that was unique to us was that Omaha was the location of Strategic Air Command. Uh-huh. The federal government, the the Air Force, paid Northwestern Bell comp, uh, Telephone Company to put in a sophisticated communication system in case there was a hot war. Well, obviously there wasn't. So this communication system was not used. So the phone company dropped their rates on what was then a brand new idea, 800 telephone numbers, where the caller did not pay for the uh, telephone call. Right. And so uh, our telephone rates for uh, interstate calls, long-distance calls, were anywhere from 10 to 20% lower than if we'd been in any other location in the country. Mm -hmm. And that was one of our major costs. So that that gave us a, a cost benefit we didn't see when we started as First Omaha. But then we did see after we started uh, advertising in the Midwest edition of the paper. Uh, that was so successful, we went to the national edition, and we attracted customers from all over. So then we really kind of changed the name to First National. So so when you're marketing to the entire world, or the, at least the entire country, where you're located is irrelevant. It, as long as it's nationwide and you're located in a place that made your cost structure cheaper than competitors – that was very fortuitous. That is correct. And the problem that we had to overcome was that people were not used to dealing with a broker that they couldn't see, touch, and feel. Right. So they're used to walking into an office and, and meeting the person. So they had to become comfortable with the systems that they were using in order for them to um, really uh, do a lot of business with us. So they would generally start out slowly with small trades 
and then they become to rely on us and that we got all their business. And, and you were one of the first that started to allow people to enter the touchtone keys to execute trades. Is, am I, do I have well, that right? Well, if you allow me to say so, Barry, we were the first. The very first. We were the very so first. So could, I could call up First National and punch in a stock symbol and punch in how many shares and the trade would go off automatically. That's correct. That, that sounds pretty innovative. It, it was very innovative. And uh, I went out to my customer base to form focus groups to ask them how they would enjoy this. And my answer was emphatically no. Really? Why, the customer said, would I use a system based on the touchtone telephone when I can talk to a broker? And uh, The answer is because it's cheaper. Well, they didn't want to use the service, so I said I have to make it cheaper to attract their attention. Right. And I and so I came out with a unique um, way of charging for a customer that three pennies a share, uh-huh. and so that was something that got through immediately, and so people would take the five minutes it took to learn how to use the system. Then what I found out was some people placed their trades so fast it would be impossible to move your finger that fast. So I called him up and I said, "What are you doing?" And he said, "Well." We are using a computer to program the touchtone system with the telephone number and with all the information of a trade. So we're sitting at home watching television and seeing the tape, and when the stock price gets close to what we want, we press one button and it goes zip. Uh, Oh, that's unique. The people loved the power of taking care of themselves. They didn't want a broker. Once they used the system, mm-hmm. they wanted the power of taking everything onto uh, themselves, and really, they be the professionals that would call the shots. And so now let's fast forward to 1995. Ameritrade becomes the first online brokerage. What was that like? Did you have any idea that this newfangled online thing would replace the whole telephone uh, side of things? Because of the story that I just told you, I knew exactly the first time that we got an order. Um, One of our clerks brought us a a printed email message, which had buy 300 shares of a blue chip stock at the market. And they said, and of course we had the customer's account number and phone number. And the question to me was, should we go ahead and place this? Because we didn't talk to the customer. have the touchstone. And I said, yeah, go ahead. We'll see what happens. So we, we uh, executed that order and went back to the customer by email to report the trade. No voice communications. Right. So it was very, very similar to the touchstone aspect of it. And I said, this is even better. Because they get a confirm with the price, the date, everything. They, they can print it out. And because it is on a PC, we can deliver more information. We can deliver our own tape. We can deliver research. And I said, this is going to be much more powerful than the touchtone telephone ever that, was. That's quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about the growth of um, of TD. First, this whole time when you go from phone calls to touchtone to, uh, to online trading, you're competing with Charles Schwab, which was one of the biggest um, discount brokers at the time. What was that like? Did you end up ever having any sort of relationship with them? Well, uh, or Chuck, him? Chuck Schwab is a friend of mine today, but at the really? time we were we were competitors. He had the advantage of having California as his customer base. Huge. And I think at the time that was the ninth California by itself was the ninth largest economy in the world. Yeah. Uh, in Nebraska, we had about a million and a half people. I mean, right. a huge huge difference. So, so I had to go national, whereas right. he could really start uh, a local. Uh, I heard about, although we started in 1975, I first heard about this West Coast discount broker called Schwab in 1977. So he started, um, you know, after we got started, but I, I really didn't know he existed. The ones I did know existed advertised on the inside page of the Wall Street Journal, and they were from New York, and then one was from Chicago. So there was only a, a couple people in the business right. when we got started. Now, a couple years later, Barry... A few years later, we had 400 competitors. Wow. Everybody thought this was simple and easy. Uh, it's not. And, of course, everybody found out that it's not simple and easy. And so competition after a period of time, 
allowed us and others to buy out our competitors. So today, you know, there's really only three or four brokerage firms right. in this uh, area. Lots of consolidation. Lots of consolidation, and uh, that was a lot of fun to go through that. In that consolidation phase, we ran across a, a company in Manhattan called Offhauser that uh, I really describe in a lot of detail in the book that, that was really attractive, and they were advertising doing trades online. Now, nobody had ever heard of online. Right. Nobody knew the Internet. Nobody knew what this was all about. This is around what year? This is, uh, you know, seven, 93, 94. Okay, so still AOL is around, but the Internet yeah. isn't the Internet yet. Yeah, that's correct. It, it hadn't evolved to the point where we are today. So um, we uh, uh, talked to them about uh, selling, and uh, he gave us a price, which at the time I thought was incredibly high. Uh-huh. And But I brought myself to really say, okay, I'll pay it just so I could understand the technology. So you acquired them. And what's what's an incredibly high price in 93 and 94? Seven and a half million dollars. <laughs> Sounds, I bet that it turned out to be a fantastic ROI 30 years later. Oh, within two years. Yeah. Incredible. We, we really didn't have any understanding. But within a very short period of time, the Offhauser folks realized that they had put the price too low, right. and I had paid a bargain basement price. But the whole industry made fun of us on the day of the trade because they said we were stupid and that was way too high. Stupid like a fox. Exactly. Six months later, they got it, yeah. and they understood what happened. <laughs> so we put uh, the economies of scale in place to be able to increase our uh, profits dramatically. Uh -huh. turned out to be a wonderful thing for us to do. We found out that the technology that Offhauser had really wasn't uh, what I understood them to have, and it was more like smoke and mirrors. So the customer could use their computer at home to send the trade, but then it printed out at Offhauser, and they had to have a clerk tear it off and, and put it back in to go to the exchange. It didn't so they didn't the have, through. we call those APIs today, there was no application program right. interface that would automate that process. So we had to build all of that, mm -hmm. uh, which is good because it, we learned the hard way. We made a lot of mistakes, a lot of software didn't work, throw it away, start all over, and do it again. But by the time we got all done, a customer could sit at home on their keypad of their own computer, right. place a trade, and get a report within seconds. So I mean, full so, online trading for real. Full online trading. And then the exchanges and the over-the-counter market develop systems of receiving those orders electronically, automatically executing them, and reporting back. So it, it turned out over a period of time and huge investments on the part of everybody in the industry to bring this type of service to the customer, which is absolutely wonderful. So you guys were, were cutting edge with Touchtone. You're cutting edge with online you very aggressively roll out um, a pretty big advertising campaign. What was that like, and what were the results? Well, of those when campaigns? we started, it was really kind of anxious. It was unsettling until we until we really did it. I I was going to take our advertising budget, I think, from twenty five million dollars a year up to a hundred million dollars. And by the way, twenty five million dollars was for, huge for relatively small company way back when, that's yeah. a big chunk of change. It was a big chunk of change. So we attracted advertising firms that were the top advertising firms in the country. Because of the size of the $100 million Be buy. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, I think there was seven or nine of them. Um, and um, I said, I've got to cut through the crowd, guys. We've got to do something new and different. And it seems to me humor is the way to go. And they said, no, that's wrong. People don't think of their money as funny. Right. It's not light at all, and you're just not going to be successful. So they all gave me ads that were dull and boring, just like a bank. Right. And except Ogilvy. Ogilvy, right. Ogilvy dared to come up with something new and different. And it, it was a person on the street that said they bought a particular stock, like General Motors, for 25 bucks. Well, General Motors selling for 50. So that there was the play on the commission as well as on the, the price, price of the stock. Right. And then they giggled. They were so happy that they would be able to buy a stock at such a low price. That, those ads really set us off in a different direction. But the ad that really made us was an ad with an office boy. Uh, his actor name is Michael Marone, if I b remember back that far. Right. And uh, he instructs his boss 
on how to place a trade online. I have a very vivid recollection of that ad. It stayed with me. It's 20 years ago, it maybe was, more. Oh, yeah, it's iconic. And he took that ad took over the whole industry. And he made a comment in that uh, ad, let's light this candle. And that became That's right. Let's light this candle. That <laughs> became a standard uh, quotation in, the, in yep. the securities industry. But that got us a lot of attention. So using humor to get across the idea that we had a low cost with good executions was something that really permeated the market and really made us grow. Any other ads from that era? This is pre-2000 dot-com yeah, era. This is Anything else really stand out from you? Those were the two. We, we did a number of uh, other commercials that had humor in them, mm-hmm. playing off of certain things in a culture. But those were the two that were the biggest and the best. Let's light this candle. I have. I'll find it on YouTube and, and post it. It's, you it's, can you can see it on my website, uh, theharderyou.work. Okay, we will definitely uh, reference that. Um, so the company goes public in 1997. Was this pre or post TD acquisition? Oh, this was pre, long time All right. before. So so what was the what was the process of IPOing like? Well, it was. Good and bad. Okay. I, I, my dream was to build a business that my children could take over and continue to build. Assuming they were interested in online brokerage. Correct. And I, we had, my wife and I had four kids. I thought, you know, one of them's probably <laughs> going to want to do this. Right. So that was the dream that I had. But if we went public, that changes. Sure. You're, you're no longer a private company. You're a public company and you're the dynamics of, who's going to run it, and and all that changes. But I realized that online trading was an inflection point in the history of not only the brokerage business, but in the history of investing Mm -hmm. for all time. And if I was going to take advantage of it, I was going to have to move. And And I wasn't, although we were making a large amount of profits, not enough for me to build the technology and advertise. So that's when I said I have to spend $100 million on advertising and $100 million on technology. And those were guesses. But, Barry, they turned out to be low. Let's talk about that technology a bit because you describe in the book, um, you describe just a never-ending series of challenges and snafus and issues. Technology was simultaneously your, your friend but also – um, I don't want to call it your enemy, but it seemed like you were constantly having to find new ways to work with the technology where it wasn't biting you in the backside. That is correct the whole time. It took a long time for us really to come to the conclusion about what we had to do. But let me describe what it was like when we started in 1975. We placed an, we wrote an order on a ticket. Our uh, office lady called in the trade to the exchange. We got the report back written on the ticket. And then she would take that copy of the order ticket and write it down in a ledger, all the trades that we did that day. And then she would write it down on another piece of paper, uh, cardboard, for that customer. And they were set in a bin. This was like Christmas carols, was like Charles Dickens. Right. I mean, so, was- so one went into the – you have two bins. One goes into the company – bin and the other goes into the customer bin so everybody you have duplicates and everybody well one's our customer files one's our company files and then we at the end of the month we'd have to type up the uh confirmations and the month-end statements and send out to customers right and hopefully everything reconciled that's correct and uh, we found out right quick if we were going to do very many trades we couldn't do that anymore right so we had to really get into uh the computers the first computer system that we got uh, didn't work very well, and, and, our, and pretty soon our volume really didn't allow us to use it. So we had to think about getting our own computer. Right. So I was one of those people that thought, well, we'll get our computer, and we'll be okay. Well, it'll last us forever. Uh, somebody said, boy, you need software. And I'd say, what, what software? <laughs> so uh, once we understood what we had to do, uh, Dave Kellogg was a, a genius that, that put it all together for us. We found out pretty soon that we outgrew that, although we spent, uh, you know, a couple million dollars. Huge budget for us at the time. We had to do something new and different all the way along. We discovered there's really three pieces of technology that we had to have built in order to make the system work when we got to the middle 1990s. Uh, the, The first was our account base and keeping records of all the trades in our customer accounts. Mm hmm 
The second was how the customer places their trade from their computer to our system. And then we had to have a piece of middleware, which would take that trade, send it to the market, come back and put it in our customer account. Right. All that software had never been built before. So you guys had to design that from scratch. We had to design that from scratch. And that's before we start talking about um, account performance reporting and billing right. and reconciliation. That's a giant, giant project. It's a giant project. And, and so this was there was no off-the-shelf software. You guys were the first ones pushing this forward. Uh, there was nothing you could buy. Nobody would <laughs> tell you. Nobody would teach you. We had to learn everything the hard way, which meant... We threw a lot of way, We threw away a lot of software because we built it, and the guys running the software building teams really didn't understand exactly what we wanted. We tried to tell them as best we could, so they did it, and we thought, well, that doesn't work. Here's what you have to change. So it was a trial and error method, but at the same time that it was awfully high in anxiety, it was exhilarating mm -hmm. because it was, you know, just like... You're, you were conquering a new world. And so it was a lot of fun from that point of view. But the, the, the anxiety came from you just really didn't know what your costs were going to be. So we finally got to the point where we knew what our costs were going to be, and it was uh, much more of a, a easier management job. So when did the TD acquisition take place? Well, we went public. and uh, That was 97? Yes, and uh, what we had done before and after we went public was, was buy other small companies, buy a lot of our competitors who could not afford and did not know how to put in their own clearing operation and their own data processing systems. And um, Waterhouse was in Manhattan and was a, a big competitor, and we had talked to them about merging or buying them. Uh, those talks did not turn out to uh, result in anything happening. But what did happen with Waterhouse is Toronto Dominion Bank in Canada bought Waterhouse mm -hmm. Securities. And um, as the um, business continued to grow, in market size with everybody having more accounts, we came to understand that size made a difference. And so if we could merge or buy a competitor, the better off we were. And Waterhouse was one of those people that fit into one of our targets. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it was a big change for us because it would now take the Ricketts family from owning more than 50% to owning less than 50%. But it was one of those things where we didn't have time to accumulate the cash flow to buy the accounts through advertising. We had to get them all at once. Right. So... We merged with the brokerage firm Waterhouse, which came with the ownership of Toronto Dominion. So now Toronto Dominion, uh, Canadian bank, became the largest shareholder of Ameritrade. So that was really a merger, not a straight-up acquisition, and they became the biggest shareholder of Correct. Ameritrade. But I was now the you're owner. a smaller owner, <laughs> right. but of a much, much bigger pie. That's right. Hmm. So I had many more dollars but less ownership. So that's late 90s. Now you're running one of the larger online brokerage firms. What was the experience like of the dot-com implosion in 2000? Um, our volume remained relatively steady. Uh -huh. So with the technology that we had put in place, we had gotten to the point where our volume could come down, our revenues could come down, and we could still make a profit. Because you continue to reduce your costs by adding more and more technology. Correct. You describe in the book some of the really hilarious—I mean, it's hilarious in hindsight. But in the book, you describe all these bugs and snafus and issues that keep coming up as you roll out more and more technology. <laughs> and you're the guy who's saying, no, no, we need more. We have to get our costs down Otherwise, we're vulnerable to, to other discounts from, from elsewhere. It was either take the risk and try to do that or uh -huh. sell before you ruin the company. So we took the risk and we did it. And uh, knock on wood, it, uh, it all worked and uh, made us uh, thrive. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this book. Good. You, you own the Cubs. You're a successful businessman. You don't need the headache of writing a book. Why bother sit down? And put all the time and effort into writing a book. There's a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm concerned that the number of new businesses getting started is too low relative to our total economy. So I wanted to encourage entrepreneurs to go ahead and start their business, 
in, even though they didn't know all the answers, which I uh, point out in the book, and to let them know it's okay to make a mistake. It's good to make a mistake because you learn from that mistake mm-hmm. and you won't repeat it. When we uh, were starting, I, I told my people, you know, all we have to do is be right 51% of the time. But as I got more experience, I came to understand, no, you could be right only 5% of the time or some small amount as long as you get rid of your errors quick. It's the magnitude of the mistakes, not necessarily the total number. Right. So, so there's a quote in the book I really like. Quote, business was an act of creativity and courage. Other people didn't seem to see it this way, but to me – Business was where life came alive. That's for me. Now that's that might be unique to an entrepreneur, but a lot of my time I spent alone, just running thoughts and ideas through my head, Mm -hmm. and then trying to carry them out. What if I did this? Where would it go? What would happen? And I'd carry it five or six steps into the future, and then find a problem, and I'd come back and restart all over again. That to me was very exhilarating. It, 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 it's, again, like the artist. You, you put something on the paper. If you don't like that particular color or hue, you kind of change it. Um, and then to take it to implementation was more exhilarating. And to see it work was heaven. Now, a lot of people would not feel those feelings that I just described to you. Uh, maybe just an entrepreneur. But it, it took me back to my childhood days when I saw my dad and and all of the people that he worked with, the electricians and the plumbers that had their own business, they were their own people. They were their own uh, men that could decide whether they wanted to make their business successful or not by the way they deployed themselves. And this was a way for me to take different ideas, which was even more exciting because we were plowing a new field. We were going into the frontier. It was a lot of fun. So early in the book, you describe going with your father, who was building houses at the time. Right. And literally, these carpenters have aprons on, different nails and different envelopes, and they're, they're building houses. And you, and, but it was manual. It was saw, hand Correct. saws. And, and you describe the moments, which I thought was really telling about what happens later in TD, you describe the moment when this electric circular saw comes out and everybody gathers around and they show a test of this and it's, oh my God, this is going to be an immense time saver. We'll be able to build things much, much uh, more quickly. How did that experience impact the way you saw technology affecting your business? I think the fact that my father knew and understand that it was so important to their work that it made an impression on me how my father was reacting to this buzzsaw. Now, the idea is really quite simple. It, it's going to save them time because I saw the carpenters using their hands and arms to saw a piece of wood. Now they could just use this electric implement and cut it right away. Uh, so it was an easy idea for me to uh, really kind of understand. But the appreciation and the happiness of my father is the emotions that really made me stick that idea in my mind mm-hmm. and really never forget it. It, it. it really it really resonated. So you, you describe, um, quote, technical challenges were my constant companion. Computers that would backfire with static electricity, um, equipment that constantly needed to be upgraded to keep up with the speed of, of real-time trading. And this is long before the quants and the algorithms took over trading. This was back in the day when your competitors were phone calls and someone walking into a brokerage office. Right. What what made the technology such a continual challenge? Because it had never been done before. You really didn't know what you needed ahead of time. Yeah, you you did not know the size of the computer. You did not know the size of the storing capacity. You did not know what the volume of trades were going to be coming. So you were guessing at a lot of this stuff. And that's why a lot of it didn't work. But when we did find what it did work, we had the basis to correct it and it was easier going forward. And you write the breakthrough uh, was figuring out how to keep trimming costs by inducing the customers to go the least expensive way. Um, so Correct. first it was a phone call, then it was a touchstone, then it was email, then it was online. Uh, in hindsight, this looks obvious. <laughs> it does. Right? It's it Well, does. that's hindsight. Of course, everything looks obvious in the rearview mirror. How 
groundbreaking was the idea we have to steer clients to the least expensive way to execute. Well, when, when we started in 1975, everybody thought we were fools. We, we talked to the regulators who said, why would you want to do this? <laughs> Brokerage firms that have been around for 100 years are going out of business. The market's not good. What makes you think you can be better? I mean, everybody threw cold water on us. And, uh, you know, the, the simple idea was that, well, when the big firm Merrill Lynch decides to compete with you, they'll just stomp on you. Right. And I said, they can't. They've got too much cost infrastructure that they can't change. Nobody understood that. So we were kind of ridiculed all the way along until we started showing the whole world that we were opening accounts so fast that we had captured the imagination of the customer to want the ease and convenience and the low cost that we were somebody to contend with. You mentioned regulators. You've had some battles with the SEC yes. over how they supervise and regulate uh, the brokerage firm and the execution. Tell us a bit about those experiences. You write about that in the book. Some of it's kind would, of amusing. I would not call it a battle so much as trying to bridge the gap of understanding. Um, you seem frustrated in the book that <laughs> you understood this and you couldn't get these guys in D.C. to get it. Well, I mean, they were just very old school. They were very old school, and people really didn't understand that customers wanted to do their own thing. So even the regulators had this idea that the brokerage firm had to give research to the customer in order to make the customer uh, want to make a decision, whereas the customer could buy their own information and do their own thing. So it was really kind of hard to get it across. Now, when the regulators came in to cause... The first time in 1975, uh -huh. we deserved it. I'm sure they walked in and said, with the idea that they were saying to themselves, "These people are so stupid. <laughs> we we don't. They shouldn't be handling customer money." Right. Well, by the way, if that was true, half of finance would be out of a job. <laughs> I mean, am I exaggerating? It's it's no. come on. A lot of it is people have a real specific knowledge in one area and the rest of the world they're blind to that's correct so so they come in and and what was that experience like well in uh the i i need to give credit to tim mcreynolds who was our attorney uh -huh. and he was a young man that had a way in his imagination he pulled out an idea of how we should approach the securities and exchange commission first of all we didn't fight them it wasn't a battle we said you are correct we were we were Recording option trades incorrectly, that was a violation of regulation, mm -hmm. which caused our net cap at a chain reaction domino effect. Right. So we said, everything you say is correct. We didn't know. And they said, well, you should have. They said, well, we know now. <laughs> they said, okay, uh, instead of shutting you down, we'll give you a uh, penalty. So, so this was really a potentially existential crisis. They oh, could yeah. have shut you down. They could have. And their idea, I'm sure when they came in, Barry, was we got to shut these people down. Really? They don't know what they're doing. Well, once we proved to them that we were honest, that we were not shills, that we were doing something that the customer wanted, that the investment public wanted, and that we could change this record-keeping system so simply and so easily, right. they said, well, well, we'll just give you a, a fine. How and, big a fine was that? Um, the dollars were not large. I can't remember. It was a small amount because we didn't have dollars. Right. But they said, you have to stop advertising. You have to stop. You have to close your office in Lincoln, Nebraska, and Chicago, Illinois, uh -huh. and um, you uh, cannot advertise for a long time until you get your books and records under control. I had to be out of the office for I think a month. I could not be around to manage things, so they were giving us penalties right. that uh, we had to accept in order to stay in business. So and close I, two offices, thirty day suspension. Um and suspend advertising for how long? I mean, you guys were eventually we could not. They did. They you. They said you cannot start advertising, and that was our lifeblood. Right until you get some your books and records. Under and how control. long did that process take that to took, get it? That took months. That took maybe two months. Oh, okay. That's. I was afraid you were going to say two years, but no, uh, it, it didn't. Take but still, that had to be a scary two month period. Oh, it was very scary. I think the judge that gave us those penalties. Yeah. thought this is enough for them to close down. They'll just go away. Oh, really? I think he thought, you know, if they can get through this, they deserve to stay in business. But huh. we did get through it. Huh. And uh, But we came out of that as friends with the regulators because they understood that we were trying to do something good for the industry, which they did not understand when they walked in our door the first time. 
Quite, quite fascinating. My special guest today is Joe Ricketts. He is the founder and former CEO of TD Ameritrade. He is also the owner of the Chicago Cubs, although really it's more accurate to say your family That's, trust is the owner of the Cubs. My kids own the Cubs. Your kids own the Cubs. But that's a nice present to the kids. You're the one who bought the the. It was a combination of if I'm I'm doing this off the top of my head, nine hundred million in '09, and the right in the middle of the crisis, right? Right. The kids put up a couple hundred million dollars. You put up the slight majority. Is that right? My my kids put up about two hundred fifty million, and my wife loaned them a bunch of money. I think a okay. couple hundred million. And everybody involved obviously got their money from you. So well, I, I say you're the, the guy who drove the purchase of the no, I, I, I'm the one who created the value that my kids could use. Okay, that's uh, fair. So my wife and I put stock in the names of our kids in the early 90s because I could see it coming. Gotcha. And this way that they would be responsible for the capital gain and not me. So I've been wrong when I'm saying you bought the Cubs. I did really, not buy the Cubs. you teed up the structure that allowed your kids to buy the Cubs. That's correct. That's quite interesting. And you talk about that in the book and I keep yeah. getting it wrong. I keep saying uh, people say to me, "Who are you interviewing this week?" Joe Ricketts, <laughs> he bought the Chicago Cubs. Uh so let's talk a little bit about the we'll come back to the Cubs. Let's talk a little bit about the Opportunity Education Foundation and some of the other philanthropies you've been involved with. Tell us a little bit what what does that foundation do? Well, I I let me take a step back. Sure. I I you know in my early fifties I had done nothing but work, and I said, well, you know, I'm rich enough now, and I can afford to travel. And travel was always one of my uh, great attractions. I had wanderlust, and uh, I wanted to go to uh, places like the Serengeti. I wanted to go mm-hmm. where there was adventure in my travel, and um, I was I my. Uh, uh, three kids, my uh, two sons and a daughter, and I went to climb Kilimanjaro with some friends, and then really? go, uh, go on a week of safari. So it was a, it was two weeks vacation. It was a long period of time. Wait, Big so you have, you have four kids, and we three of them kids. climb Kilimanjaro with you? Correct. My my daughter, my son Peter, and my son Todd, mm-hmm. and I, and we were with good friends and their family. And so it was a great time. But in climbing Kilimanjaro, we became close to our guides because uh-huh. that's not an easy thing to do. Oh. It's, it's, uh, so when we came off of Kilimanjaro, we had already developed a bond. So now I'm out driving down the, the road in the Serengeti, and we don't see any animals. And so I'm going to carry a conversation with the guy, the driver. I said, uh, what do you do? when you are not on safari. He said, well, I run this school. I started this school. Now, I'm quite sure this man cannot read or write, uh-huh. but he's bright, so he, he knows how to do the guide stuff. So I'm fascinated that, that somebody that is pretty close to illiterate starts a school. I said, why? He said, well, I didn't think my kids were getting a good enough education. Wow. So I said, how many students do you have? He said, I have 23. I said, do they pay a tuition? He said, oh, no, they can't afford it. They're poor. So, well, how do you support the school? And he said, I, I take my check from the safari company, and I put it in the bank, and I use that money to support the school. Now, Barry, I know this guy has nothing. Right. I'm impressed. By American standards, this guy is a huge hero. Right. So I said, what's the name of your school? He said, it's uh, uh, um, St. And it put his name in there. And, I, and I, I've gone to a Catholic school all my life, and so mm-hmm. I know all the saints. No, I'd never heard of this saint before. I said, who is that saint? He said, oh, that's my name. <laughs> so he got it halfway. The government finally made him uh, change the name, take his name off of it. He couldn't call himself a saint because he started a school. But I said, hey, can we— we had talked enough about it that I was really fascinated. I said, can we go see your school when we go back to Arusha before we get on the plane? And he said, oh, I'd be happy to have you come. So I said, well, let's go back to camp and talk to the rest of the people on the trip. And they all wanted to go. So we went to see a school. Now, the school was a cement platform, right? A concrete brick walls with a tin roof. Right. Now, it's equatorial, so we they didn't have to worry about cold right no snow and not a small rainy season just yeah and and there wasn't anything in the room there were nothing on the walls there was no books there was no pencils there was no paper there were three volunteer adults 
right. that taught the kids ABCs and poems and things of that sort. So they were working really, really hard to give their kids a little bit of an education. So um, I, I said to his name was Shengi Wilson. I said, Shengi, I'll tell you what I'll do. They had electricity, no running water, but they had electricity. I'll buy you a TV. And when I go back to the United States, I will send you DVDs of programs that our kids see before they go to school, like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers and things of that sort. So we did that. Then I went back a year later. Now he's got 47 students. Right. And they're all paying a little bit. Mm-hmm. So when he had that TV and the DVD player and showed what happens in America, there was a lot more interest from the neighborhood. And that really kind of grew. The next school wanted it, and the next school wanted it. So we really started taking on one grade uh, every year. And I went back to America. I was familiar with making commercials. We hired a studio. I put in a teacher and students, and we filmed teachers giving educational courses, math and science and things. So now they can learn how to instruct the kids off of... The DVDs. Uh Uh-huh. Became very popular. But when we got to secondary education, the ninth grade, this guy, Steve Jobs, came along with new ideas of how you use technology. Sure. So we said, we're going to use that new technology. And in fact, we're going to stop assisting the schools we're going to build the, the education programs into the um, iPad. Uh-huh. And then we can give the iPads to the uh, schools and the students, and they can learn the same way kids in the United States learn. So that's how uh, we got started off on uh, the education system. And how large has that scaled up to be? For primary grades, we're at about 1,750 schools wow. with thousands of students. 1,750 over... schools? Schools. And that's all in Africa, or is that? Uh, yeah, 11, 11 countries. Three of them are in uh, Asia, India, uh, Sri Lanka, and um, uh, Kathmandu. <laughs> what? Right. And then uh, the rest of them are in the various countries in, in Africa. But the education department of the government of Tanzania saw what we were doing and they loved it. So they really kind of have sponsored us to be able to expand the secondary education schools in Tanzania. And so that's what we're concentrating on right now. So we have about uh, 40 high schools in Tanzania and we add more every year to uh, our system of uh, education and it is changing their life significantly. I, I can imagine. Now, it's worked so well in Africa, I said, we ought to try it in the United States. So I've got two schools in uh, the United States, one in Santa Rosa, California, and the other one in Omaha, Nebraska. How, how did the school survive the most recent fire up in Santa Rosa? Oh, not well. I mean, not some, well. No, some of the kids, uh, you know, their homes were burnt. Uh, they had to relocate. They had to be out of school for a long time. The fires never got close to our school, mm-hmm. but they certainly did influence the people that were concerned with our school. Sure. Both fires, last year and this year. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is something that uh, we just had to live with and get along with. And where's the other school? In- the other other school is in Omaha, Nebraska, in, in Bellevue. It's located on Bellevue University campus. And uh, we, we learned, I structured them each differently, so we learned different lessons. So going forward, as we open more schools in the United States, we're concentrating on putting them on university campuses because we, we bring kids out of families who have never gone to college. They're, nobody in their family has gone to college. And I like to go to uh, disadvantaged neighborhoods. Uh-huh. And the kids then are in high school on campus with college kids, and it doesn't take them too long. They <laughs> figure kids, it out pretty quickly. I can do this, yeah. yeah so absolutely. it's not something foreign to them. And, you seem and so very passionate to... about this uh, I'm very project. passionate about it. You, it. It's incredibly good feeling. Sure. To change people's lives for the better. Now, the people in Africa, we're giving them a chance to live in an environment where they don't have to go into the fields. In the United States, what we're opening up is uh, an idea to students that don't get this at home. And uh, so it's, it's really – and, of course, there's large parts of our cities and our country where children need to have the opportunity to be able to get ahead to take advantage of the American dream. Right. And then our education system, that's what we do. We take the kids 
that are from a poor neighborhood and say, here's what you can achieve if you get a good education. And we help them all the way through. Hmm. Quite, Very quite satisfying. interesting. Yeah. You have four kids. I have four kids. One of your sons, governor of Nebraska. Correct. Uh, the other of your sons is a uh, significant um, participant in the RNC. Correct. Your daughter is very well known in the Democratic Party. She's a, a huge supporter of gay rights and Correct. has put forward a lot of policies. And um, I don't know if the fourth kid is all that politically active. Well, he runs the Cubs. So he, he's, he's, too, he's busy. He's too busy winning World Series that's to, right. to mess that's around right. with politics. But that's quite a spread of political thought from within the Ricketts family. And I've, I've got to say, Barry, I don't think it's much different than most families. You get a lot of, every, first of all, my wife and I brought our children up to be independent thinkers. Mm -hmm. And so I, we've said to ourselves several times, we can't be unhappy if they don't agree with us. Uh, so even among the, uh, four, the, the three boys that are conservative, they don't agree on the individual aspects of conservative. Sure. So there's a lot of disagreement, regardless of which party or what uh, ideology you may want to follow. But we all love each other, we respect each other, and we get along fine. Thanksgiving's uh, not too crazy at the Ricketts household? Correct. We we might take a jab at another person for a particular thought or idea, right. but we don't get into uh, serious talks because it's not going to change anybody's mind. Right. No reason to either preach to the choir or waste your breath. Correct. We have been speaking with Joe Ricketts, founder and former CEO of TD Ameritrade. His family is the owner of the Chicago Cubs. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and come back for the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things uh, online trading related. You can find that at iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever your finer podcasts are found. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Check out my weekly column on Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Joe, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you. Pleasure. Um, full disclosure, my firm uh, manages uh, about a billion two, and TD is our largest um, holder as a custodian has just under a billion dollars of our assets. Wonderful. Um, so we are familiar with your company and what it does uh, for for quite a while. Um, there's one or two questions I wanted to get to, and then we'll do our speed round. Uh, I had to ask. Um, I didn't get a chance to ask about the institutional business because you started out primarily as a um, retail custodian and brokerage firm how did the how did the institutional side develop it took years of developing the market for the individual investor and the uh, n next segment would be to bring in institutions mm -hmm. these would not be the huge institutions that that we know of but financial planners that have their own businesses and uh, do the execution and clearing for these firms. And uh, that's just something that uh, really didn't excite me too much. So I brought in other people to go down that road. And that's uh, about the time that I retired as uh, CEO and, and became chairman of the board <clears throat> and figured this is a time in my life when I really kind of deserve to uh, do fun things. And uh -huh. I found out the most fun thing to do was work. But anyway, <laughs> uh, after a while, I um, relinquished the, the chairman position. So I, I saw a lot of my friends start their own businesses, become very successful, sell them, and one day they're busy and the next day they're not. <clears throat> they turned out to be very unhappy. Right. So I kind of paced myself to do it in pieces. So I was even ready to get off the board when I did. That was 2011, something like that? Yes. So I, I haven't been on the board for uh, you know almost 10 years, and I've, I've been out of management for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. But I but I still own a large part of the stock. I think I own 7% of the stock that's out there. Hmm. So let's jump to our speed round, because I know we have to uh, let you go eventually. Um, go as long as short as you want with these questions. They're designed to kind of fill in some blanks yeah. about, about your personality. Tell us the first car you owned, year making model. <laughs> it was a Studebaker. Really? Oh yeah, it was the 1940s and it was a four-door. 
Uh-huh. The ugliest car you could buy. I was going to say they are not pretty cars. They are not pretty cars, but I think we paid all of $18 to buy that car. 18 bucks. Yeah, this was this was back in the 1950s. <laughs> would you would you be insulted if I told you you overpaid? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. So, what's the most important thing people don't know about Joe Ricketts? That I don't know what that might be. You're kind very, of an open book, right? I'm very open. Uh, so uh, there's really no secrets that I know of mm-hmm. that I can say that uh, people don't know about. Everybody knows I have a website. I bear my soul. And and the website is theharderyouwork.com? JoeRicketts.com. JoeRicketts.com. Oh, there's a separate work, uh, separate a separate site for the book. That's correct. Gotcha. JoeRicketts.com. Um you mentioned your dad. Who else were early mentors to you in your career? The A lot of the people in Nebraska City seemed to take an interest in me. All of my former employers, uh-huh. uh, the Boy Scout leader, uh, friends of the family, all of those people that I saw doing their own thing, having their own business, having their own interest, all of those people were important to me to let me know that really you determine what your life is by what you do and not what other people are going to be able to help you with. So mm-hmm. I learned independence. That's very I, Midwestern bedrock values. Well, right? I'd like to say they're very United States values. Um, anyway, I, I think that formative time, seeing all of these successful people, uh, is what really put me off in the direction that I started to mm-hmm. uh, to go. I didn't know that I wanted to own my own business, and then I did know it, and I didn't have any money. So it was a matter of evolution. So who influenced your approach to thinking about investing and trading and, and brokerage? I I saw an advertisement. This is in about 1965, 66, of a broker and nice suit, shiny shoes, making a lot of money. Brokers at that time were make market was good. Brokers were making a lot of money. Sure, that make, whole post World War II run up was correct. a great time. And I wanted to make a lot of money, so I was willing to work hard. So I said, I I think I want to go uh, learn how to become a broker. So that's what set me off on that line. Hmm. Let's talk about books. What do you like to read? What do you I like? Enjoy? Historical novels, American historical novels. Give us some names. Well, I just finished up that book by uh, Brian Kilmeade called Sam Houston. Uh huh. Very interesting. There's more to Sam Houston than I ever thought. So I'm going to buy his. He's got three more books. And, I'm and buy Sam those. Houston claim to fame was what? What he was the Avenger of the Alamo. Mm-hmm. So he's the father of Texas. He's the one ah. that made Texas what it is. Or, and the city of Houston is named for him, is that uh, right? The city of Houston is named after him, yeah. Hmm. Very fascinating story when you get into the details. You know, I remember from history the high points, right? but talking about those details is uh, is a lot of fun. I uh, enjoyed Undaunted Courage immensely. Undaunted that's, Courage, that's the, that? that's the story of um, Lewis and Clark. Oh, Okay. Uh, Is that the new book by... um, It's not new, it's old. Okay, I'm thinking it's a different book. In fact, the uh, author passed away. Undaunted Courage. And uh, that, you'll have to help me out with the author. I read it a number of years ago. Let's see what the Google machine says. Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose wrote a lot of historical novels. And he wrote a lot about the Second World War. Uh, the I Second... see that. Band of Brothers was him. Okay. My, sure, I remember that. My, my uh, three boys love those Second World War stories, but I was, I'm, I'm more interested in what he wrote about Americans' history. Uh, the Undaunted Courage really kind of led me into studying a lot about the beaver trade and how the West was opened and the characters that it took. Um, so my... My interest is um, really uh, historical novels. I get excited about G- that Give stuff. me one more, and then I'm going to give a recommendation to you, but you probably read it already. I, I'm i at a loss to give you one more. Okay, so now I'm going to ask, have you read The Wright Brothers by David McCullough? I have not, but I the, love David McCullough. Can I tell you something? Yes. He wrote this book for you. I'll get it. This is about two brothers against everybody telling them how crazy they are to do what they do, go out, essentially event flight yeah. and it's 
if you like McCullough, it's just a beautiful book. I just read his uh, program, The Pioneers, mm-hmm. uh, which I finished up maybe about three months ago. I have that book sitting on well, my a, night table waiting for my next vacation to it's read. It's a great book. So Everything, I will get the one about um, you, the Bright Brothers. You're going you're gonna to plow right through this. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. One of the biggest failures financially that I've had, I I came up with a system called On Money, Uh where a customer could take their brokerage account, their bank account, and their insurance coverage, put it all into one operation, one financial package run by the software. And when I would talk to people about that, everybody said they wanted it, so I put a huge amount of money, $100 And um, it never did take off. Huh. Today, like a Merrill Lynch wrap account. They All the big brokerage firms d- do that. Today, everybody uses it. Right. But at the time, I had to pull uh, information from different companies, and they were not too excited about letting me have their information. <laughs> and uh, I presented it to independent uh, customers. Really, you need a financial planner. So I, right. there were two mistakes I made with it. But the thing that is stuck with me is I went too far. I was so convinced I was right, right. that I, I pushed it to 100 million and I should have stopped it at about 20 or 30. So I learned there, once you know that you've got something that's not working, pull the plug. That, that, that's always good advice. You mentioned Kilimanjaro. What do you do for fun when you're not working? My fun is my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have never found anything that was more fun for me to do than work, except ride a motorcycle, uh-huh. and I came across that by accident. Are you still Are you still riding a bike? I, I've got a motorcycle with four wheels now because my <laughs> balance isn't as good as it used to be when I was younger. You're just not going fast enough. Self balance, <laughs> right? So, so I'm a little jealous because I like to ride, uh-huh. and I won't ride around here because it's so dangerous and so much traffic. Where you are. That's made for motorcycles. You can get on a country road, two-lane highway, and you can see for miles, and there's not another Are car. you a Harley guy or you a BMW guy? I, I'm a, both. I have a BMW and I have a Harley. The Harley I kind of ride in town. Right. The BMW I take on my long trips. Right. It's uh, They're delightful cruisers. They are. They? Um, let's talk about the industry. What are you most optimistic and most pessimistic about in the world of online trading and, and brokerage? Well, I'm I'm really not pessimistic about the world of online brokerage. I, I think the accumulation of data and the accumulation of information on the individual will uh, kind of lead financial planners to be able to custom make software programs of financial planning for the individual customer. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that's very exciting. And the software is all moving in that direction. And Money software, Guide Pro and all the other correct. similar software heading in that direction. So the software will be continued to be enhanced and bring more benefits to the individual consumer. Are you at all concerned about free, free trading, free ETFs, free everything? I do have a little hesitation. Uh, we don't want buying a stock to become similar to uh, placing a bet on a football game. Right. And that's a risk I think that's real and that we have to be careful of. The reality is the difference between absolutely free and paying $5. Right. There's there's no change in utility. It's, it's exactly a psychological friction that forces people to think about it. So if, if we can keep people's buying of stocks for free for no commissions off into a professional area so that it, it doesn't become a Las Vegas gambling space, we're, we're right. fine. But we don't know that yet. That's got to play out. And our final two questions, um, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college graduate beginning their career that was interested in pursuing a career in finance? The first thing I do is say, go off by yourself onto the mountain for a couple of days. And just be by yourself and think about what you want to do in your heart, in your psyche. What is the thing that makes your life worthwhile? Then after you've come to that answer, see how you can fit it into a money-making aspect to allow you to live the lifestyle that you want. And it may not be finance. People Mm -hmm. may say, well, I want finance because I can make good wages. But they may find out, oh, you know, I'm going to play the piano. Right. They'll be happier playing the piano, even though they probably won't make as much money. Interesting. And um, what do you know about the world of trading and investing today that you wish you knew 50 years ago when you were first getting started? 
I am quite happy with finding a good company and buying it. That's the Graham and Dodd uh, mm-hmm. idea and not trading all the time. Um, the the thing that you have to be careful with with Graham and Dodd is is don't become enamored. Don't become emotionally involved with your investment or the company that you're looking at. Uh, sometimes you, you'll find another company that you think might do better and you you really got to say, oh, I need to sell this because you've got a limited amount of money no matter how much you have and put it over someplace else. So you got to uh, really cause yourself to think deeply. Hmm, quite, quite interesting. We have been speaking with Joe Ricketts. He is the founder of TD Ameritrade and the author of a new book, The Harder You Work, The Luckier You Get, and an entrepreneur's memoir. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the nearly 300 such conversations we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Since you're already looking up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, please give us a a review. Uh, You can check out my daily column at ritholtz.com. You can sign up there for our daily reads. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put these conversations together each week. Carolyn O'Brien is my audio engineer. Michael Boyle is my producer. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.